Hi and welcome to Authorised, the podcast where writers speak. My name's Kevin Hillier and welcome to Series 4 and uh, to the first episode of the 2023 year. And a terrific Australian author to talk to today, a man who's uh, written a number of books. His latest is called The Tilt. His name is Chris Hammer. You'll find out more about him shortly. Very happy to say that as we head into this fourth series, our podcast partners once again, CSCG, a terrific bunch of people, a wonderful organisation, and they really can help you uh, achieve your financial goals in 2023. If you've decided to have a little rejig or you decide that you might need a little rejig of finances, well, they are the people to talk to. Jump on the website, check out what they've got to offer, cscg.com.au, and then give them a call, have a chat. Uh, they're real people, uh, they're terrific people, as I said, and uh, you'll enjoy doing business with them and you'll uh, enjoy the results of doing business with them as well. Give them a call on double nine seven four eight triple three double nine seven four eight triple three CSCG. Chris Hammer's a very prolific uh, crime fiction author writer. Prior to that, of course, he was a journo for many years uh, and did a couple of uh, non-fiction books to kick off his uh, his writing and then has uh, found a, a genre in crime fiction that, uh, that he's very good at. And his latest book is A Beauty. Let's talk to him about it. It is called The Tilt. Congratulations on The Tilt. Was this one a tough one to write or did it just, because it kind of flows on from from Treasure and Dirt, did it come easily? No, it was a little bit tricky, this book, because there are three points of view and they're spread over three different timelines and you jump between the three. So one story is of a young lad in the Second World War mining his family's cattle in his big forest on the Victorian and New South Wales border called the Barmer Millawa Forest, a real place, right? So that's where the book is set. So you've got his story in the Second World War. There's another story told from the point of view of a teenage girl living in a nearby town in the 1970s. And then you've got the current day story, which is with our um, now fully-fledged homicide detective, Constable Mel Buchanan, is a character in the previous book, Treasure and Dirt. So you've got those those three stories, and it, they start off as very separate, but then as the book progresses, their, their fates kind of collide and, and blend together, if you like. So I, I think I've, I've got it pretty good by the end of it, but there's a bit of craft in doing that, making sure the pace in all three stories uh, is kept up through as, as the reader's change point of view. So it's a little bit tricky to write, but, um, and it took, you know, I went up down a few blind alleys and there was a few false starts here and there, but by the end, I, by the end, I was really happy with it. So the crimes are made up and the people are made up, but the geography is real. So, uh, and you spent some time in these, in this area that you, that uh, you've set this, this book in. Yeah. Barma Millua is the largest river red gum forest in the world. And it's formed by this uplift of land that happened thousands of years ago called the Cadell Tilt. And that's in part where the title, the tilt, comes from. And so the water backs up there. The Murray's very shallow. It flows through a place called the Barmer Choke. And if too much water comes down, it spills out into the forest. Now, I first went there back in about 2008, 2009 and spent a week there when I was researching a non-fiction book I wrote called The, the River. River. Yep. And, and, and at that point, the drought was just so severe. The forest was dying, particularly out you know, in the periphery where it hadn't had any water for years. 
But I was talking to an environmentalist there about the damage, and he just explained to me that back, you know, before the droughts and back last century or the century before when, before all the dams and weirs were there, the natural state of the forest was a forest nine months a year and a wetland the other three months that the river would spill over into the forest. So that stuck with me. I found it at the time almost impossible to believe. But now at these last two or three years, these La Nina years, um, the river has been spilling into the forest. And right now the authorities, there's so much water in the river, they're deliberately letting it out into the forest um, to, you know, because the system is full. So I went down and I saw it and it's beautiful. It's like the, the forest is there, but there's this very still water there. It's like the, I don't know, like the Florida Everglades without the alligators <laughs> and and just just absolutely teeming with bird life. Oh, wow. And I went down and I went, all oh, right, well, I know where I'm setting my next book. Yeah. Is that, is that important for you to find, to find a place to set the book in, so is that that works that part of your your, your brain into the into the story? Yeah, it, it, that's a thing for me definitely. All of my books have got strong settings. Yeah. Even my third book, Trust, which is set in Sydney, but it's a, so it's geographically accurate, um, but it's an imagined Sydney or a reimagined Sydney. Some of my locations are uh, fictional towns set in real landscapes. My first book, Scrublands, set out on the Hay Plains, but in a in an imagined town. The same with Silver Up on the north coast of New South Wales somewhere, but an imagined town. So this one is actually accurate. The Barma Millawa is a real place, but I've changed the names and the characteristics of some of the nearby towns. So we've got the, the geography part of it. How do you how do you set about to? I mean, you mentioned there's three stories. There's three rivers leading into a into an outlet here. Uh, from your story point of view, how do you how do you juggle all those? And how does that how does that work? I mean, a lot of writers talk about not having storyboards, and it just happens in in their head. Does it happen in your head, or do you have to plan it out more meticulously? No, I'm I'm not known as a pantser. You've probably come across this term before. So you have the plotters who plot everything out and the pantsers who write by their seat of their pants. <laughs> um, you know, you start and you've got no real idea where the story's going to end up. You've got this seed of this idea. So I'm going to have, you know, you may be aware one of the storylines is going to finish up or one of the, the plot lines. That was a case here with now, like, kind of had an idea where I, where I wanted her to wind up sort of emotionally, but I didn't know how she was going to get there. So I had a starting point and a finish point, but no, no idea of how to, to get between the two. And in the other plot line, I really started and saw where they went. It's a very inefficient way of writing. I wish I, so I threw, out, I threw out a lot of material while I get it right, but look, that's, I, I'm trying to refine my method a little bit more with each book. But, you know, I'm very happy with the results. So I guess, you know, the proof is in the pudding. The the, the flying by the city of pants is is great when you when you're kind of doing a short story that might be ten pages. But when you when you're doing a five hundred page book, that's a totally different uh, scary project to, to, to undertake. Yeah, so one of the other I guess characteristics of my book, you you mentioned the strong settings. 
Another thing I've done right from the start with Scrublands is I had this fear in, in writing a crime fiction book that people would guess who did it, you know, halfway through the book yeah. and, and the rest would be anticlimactic. And I thought, well, but if I keep all the clues and that right until the end, that, you know, introduce a whole lot of new information for the reader, 10 pages from the end of the book, they'll feel cheated. So I thought the way I would get around that is I'd have multiple storylines and multiple crimes. Yep. And so if the reader guessed one, they'd be very unlikely to guess all of them, um, particularly as, you know, as I'm writing the book. I don't know <laughs> how half of them resolve. Um, and, I've, and I've stayed with that. So, and that's the same with this book too. So there is quite a lot going on. My problem when I try and plot things out is I think I've got a really good plot and then I start writing and then I get a better idea. And if you get a better idea, why wouldn't you go with that? Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you, if, if, if it changes a lot as you as you go along because you go, oh, no, he could do this or she could do that. Yeah, absolutely. Even, even with this one with those three storylines, there was quite a lot happening in the, uh, in the Second World War storyline and the 1970s one. But the contemporary story was more about now investigating what had happened in the past. And an editor who read it early on just, just made one observation and said, oh, she's spinning her wheels a bit here. Or, you know, it's like treading water. There's not a lot going on in that story. And I just went, oh, she's right, she's right. So I completely rewrote that whole point of view thing, that whole um, third of a book. How do you find it writing uh, for, a, for a female lead? Is that, does that uh, play with your head or does that come easily or how does that work for you? Well, I don't find it too difficult. I hope it, it seems authentic and rings true for the reader. But I'm not, I don't set out to write a kind of like a representative woman or an every woman or speak on behalf of women or anything like that. I'm character. just thinking of yep. a character. Yep. And any character you've got has got multiple characteristics. And, of course, the gender is just one of those things. None of us define ourselves completely by our gender, right? We, we, you know, it's our job, our relationships, our personalities, all the rest of it. So our history. So that's the same when I'm thinking of a character. And so I pretty much approach writing a female character in a book in the same way as I'd approach a male character. And, of course, their gender is an important part of them, but only part. Yeah. You worked as a journo for 30-odd years before you, you decided to, to write, write – I mean, you wrote the two, The River and the Coast, obviously, but then to, to turn to, to fiction and write fiction. Where did you find uh, that, that writer, that person that could do that inside you? Well, I kind of bit of a, a surprise. I think it's something I always had a bit of a hankering to do. And I know that's the case because there's a couple of failed attempts from back in my 20s and 30s, you know, stuck in the bottom of the desk drawer. A very very common scenario amongst a lot of authors that they they try a few times and fail miserably. But you kind of get the bug. I definitely got the bug writing those two nonfiction books. I really loved doing it, much more than I thought I would, to be honest. But... One of the lessons I learned was that there's not a lot of money can be made writing books in Australia. <laughs> you know, the the average income of a published author from writing is about twelve thousand dollars a year. So most 
people who are getting published are working a full-time job on the side. That's what I did. I, I After the non-fiction books, I went back. I got a proper job again as a journalist. But I missed the writing. I didn't have time to do non-fiction. So I just started almost as a hobby, a bit of a retirement project, writing the book that became Scrublands. And then um, I was very fortunate with the timing of its release. It did very well to the extent that I'm one of those fortunate few who are now a full-time writer in Australia. But um, when I first started writing Scrublands, I wasn't I wasn't thinking of that. I was just thinking, oh, I'd rather like to write another book and I'll have a crack at crime fiction. Yeah. So is Scrublands being made into a television movie or something of that description? Yeah, it's being developed. These things take a lot of time. Oh, yeah. A lot of books get options for the screen and a lot sort of fall, then fall by the wayside. But I'm pretty confident this is going to go ahead. It's been developed in conjunction with the streaming service Stan and Channel 9. It's being um, produced by a fantastic production company called Easy Tiger. That's the company behind the Jack Irish crime series that you might have seen. on. Yeah, yeah. I've I've seen their logo on a few things. They're very good. And and also Rake and a lot of – yeah, so it's in very safe hands there which I'm, I'm happy about. And, and, yeah, hopefully it's going to be, it'll be made in the not-too-distant future. So are you a, a, a writer who sits down every morning at 8 o'clock and clocks on and, and writes and then clocks off again, or are you do you do that by the seat of your pants as well? I'm pretty – I'm not super disciplined, but I do tend to write every day. And it's more that I feel a bit addicted to it. It's like being a – a jogger or something. If I don't do it, it doesn't. The day doesn't quite feel right, and I'm I'm kind of interested to see where the characters are going to go and where the story's going to go. So some people say, "Oh, you know, you're very self-disciplined," but it's not that. It's just that you know I like doing it. Yeah, your uh, your first three books had uh, two characters, and that this. This one and uh, and Treasure and Dirt have got uh, two new characters that you developed. Uh, so you you're keeping these two going for a little while, or what are you what are you going to do with them? Yeah, so the same in the first three books. I wrote Scrubland, and I and, and I thought it was just going to be a, a one off book, but I really liked the character Martin, and I felt there was more to him. And that's so in Silver, he goes back and visits his old hometown. And then the third book, Trust, is really about his partner Mandy's past, that the, the woman that he meets in Scrublands. But I felt I might have exhausted their emotional journey, at least for the while. So I thought, I'll, t- I'll take a break. I'll write a standalone book, uh, Treasure and Dirt. But the same thing happened. So two new characters, Ivan Lukic and Neil Buchanan. Ivan's actually a very minor character in the, in the first three books. But I thought, oh, well, I'll develop him into a you know, full character. And then the same thing happened. They, they got under my skin, particularly Nell. She's a, she's a, I really like this great character. She's very feisty and independent and resilient. But on the other hand, she's, she's kind of vulnerable and does get sort of messed up a bit. So she's a very, I think, relatable type of character. Mm. And so that's what happened when I was writing Treasure and Dirt. By the time I'd finished writing it, I was thinking, oh, there's much more to now. Let's, let's see what happens. And so what happens in this book, in the tilt, with, without giving too much away, 
Ivan and Nell are sent down to the forest, to the Barma Miller or forest, because a body has been found. And Ivan leaves Nell there to investigate. She's a bit miffed by this because the body is clearly, it's nothing more than a skeleton. It's decades old. She thinks it's impossible to, to work out what's happened. Um, she thinks it's destined to be filed in a cold case. But then events start escalating because more bodies are found and there's some very strange people living in the forest and they start threatening Nell and there's physical violence and she's, suddenly she's up against it. But what really, the real kind of emotional pincher, if you like, is she's grown up nearby and she starts to suspect that members of her own family are implicated in the murders. Mm. And so it becomes quite fraught for her, but hopefully quite, compelling and intriguing for the reader. Yeah, no, very good. And uh, we should point out that even though the characters uh, go from book to book, uh, the, the books are standalone stories uh, to, to, to enjoy. You don't necessarily have to have read Treasure and Dirt to understand the tilt. That's right. And that's that's the same with all of my books. Yeah. And it's actually quite typical of, of crime fiction books that feature, the, say, the same detective. I mean, going back, well, going back right to Agatha Christie and whatever, yeah. And, and part of that is because there's a crime that has to be solved and you have to tell the reader by the end of the book what's happened, who did it, why done it, all, the, all that sort of stuff. Yep. So every time you start a new book in a series, it's in, inevitably a, a standalone. So if you read them in order, it might be slightly better, but it really makes no difference. So have you already started on the next one? Yeah, well, in, in, a, in the same way as, in writing Treasure and Dirt, Nell got under my skin and thought, oh, there's more to her. The same things happen this time. So there's going to be another book. It's very early days, of course. But, yeah, another Ivan and, and Nell book, maybe with a little bit more emphasis on Ivan this time. But as I say, it's early days. I notice uh, in the uh, acknowledgement you mentioned a, a writer's house that you went to in December 2021 that you uh, you had a great experience at. Do you, uh, you explain to me how that works? This is a place called Varuna and it's called the Writer's House and it's a bequest from the estate of the great Australian novelist of the early 20th century called Eleanor Dark. She lived there and her husband was a successful doctor, so they had a bit of money. Uh, they lived up there in Katoomba. And then her son, Mick Dark, kept it going as a place where writers can go and spend a week or two. There's typically six writers at a time. When I was there, there were four because of COVID restrictions. It's catered for, and I felt a little bit guilty going there, um, because I think the benefit is greatest, particularly for younger female authors, who, as I say, typically are holding down a full-time job yeah. and often have young families. And so all of us write, even the world's most successful writers, started off working full-time jobs, writing late at night, early morning, stolen hours on the weekend, that sort of thing. So this place, Varuna, um gives people that break to go and just concentrate on their writing in a supportive uh, environment. It's been going for decades and really any, you know, 
everyone who's anyone kind of in Australian riding has probably passed through there at some point in their career. Okay. Chris, congratulations on the tilt, mate, and on, on your body of work to date. There's obviously, uh, uh, you know, everyone likes to think they've got one book in them. You've got plenty in you and uh, obviously plenty more to come. So I really appreciate your time and, uh, and good luck. Uh, Kevin, thank you so much. My thanks to Chris for his time and good luck with The Tilt, his latest book. Obviously, plenty more to come uh, from the, the pen and typewriter of Chris Hammer in the future. Uh, one of your uh, classic pants authors. <laughs> I love that. He's a panther. Flies by the seat of his pants, as do many of our authors, uh, many of which you can catch on previous episodes of this podcast. Wherever you found this one, you can catch uh, some uh, old episodes, uh, timeless episodes of the Authorised Podcast. Please enjoy those. And don't forget, if you uh, want to do something about your finances, one group of people you should be talking to is CSCG. They're terrific. They'll welcome your call on double nine seven four eight triple three, and they will help you out uh, to achieving your financial goals. So have a chat to them. Till we speak uh, next on the Authorised Podcast, please uh, check out some of the older episodes and I look forward to your company again uh, for Authorised. 